Um, good morning, church. Um, today's Bible verse will be taken from Exodus chapter 19, verse 1 to 25. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out for Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and said before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to, the, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits for the people all around. Of all, uh, yeah, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because of the Lord. He had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself 
wonders, saying, Set limits round the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everybody. Thanks to our teenagers for serving us this morning. Um, I think Bokang has left, but that was nerves of steel, right? Hey? Most adults will testify uh, to how terrifying it is to be up here, but he did an amazing job. So we thank God for our teenagers. We thank God for our teenage ministry. Uh, just a little bit more housekeeping before, before we jump into our passage, um, just to let you know that um, Martin is away in KZN. He's covering for Bishop Jomo, uh, who's on sabbatical just for a couple of weekends, a couple of Sundays. So please do pray for him while he's down there. And also Raphael is um, leading a funeral for one of our um, family members uh, this morning. So you can pray for him and pray for the family. Um, That would be most welcome. If I could just ask uh, that if you are a mom with a small uh, child with you, uh, I don't see or hear any, um, but if you are and uh, your child gives you any hassles, please do feel free to step out onto the corridor. It's probably a bit chilly for that this morning. We have a cry room just through those doors and immediately on your left if um, your little one gives you any hassles. Why don't you bow your heads with me and uh, we'll come to this passage. Heavenly Father, uh, we are considering your holiness this morning. Um, We reflect on the fact that even even under the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Apostle Paul calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews reminds us that our God is a consuming fire. Um, and so, Father, as always, but especially this morning, we, we recognize that we approach with nothing, um, relying on nothing but your mercy and your kindness to us. And we trust in your goodness. Uh, We trust that as we meet with you this morning in the power of your spirit, you will change us and transform us. You want our good. Uh, You love us as a father. Uh, You love us as a father through your son. And um, that you want us to to leave here, to leave here rejoicing, to leave here worshiping, uh, to leave here changed people for your glory and for our good. And so we pray these things trusting in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Personal question to open the sermon. Why do you try to be holy? What is holiness anyway? When we talk about living the Christian life, what do we actually mean? What are we saying? And why would we live that, that way? If you, um, on your way home, you need to grab some Milo at Sandridge Square and you're there in the, in the queue, you're chatting to the gent behind you, maybe you strike up a conversation with the cashier and you do your own little survey on holiness, you ask people what they think of holiness and holy people, I think it would be split right down the middle. Some would say, look, society's failing, holiness is a good thing, and there should be more of us. 
For others, when you say holiness, they are thinking, they're not thinking very pretty thoughts, are they? They're thinking judgmental, boring, uptight, hall monitor types who just don't know how to have any fun. Intolerant bigots, basically. The holy. What do you think of holiness? Maybe you think something like this. If we want to be with God, we have to be holy. Plain and simple. They are corrupt politicians, tenderpreneurs, people who sleep around, gays, drunks, racists, and then they're the holy people. We don't do those things. The Ten Commandments are clear. We are Christians. That's what it means to be holy. Maybe you think that way. Or you might be thinking, hang on, hang on. Aren't we forgetting grace? God is forgiving. And so holiness is more of an Old Testament idea. If you're confused by what I've been saying, well, that was deliberate. Because when it comes to holiness, I think often we are confused. And that's why we so desperately need Exodus 19. It is a great place to take all our confusion about holiness. How did we get to Exodus 19? Well, let's play it through one more time. God has led Israel out of slavery, through the water, through the wilderness, to the mountain. Why the mountain? For what purpose? What's going to happen at the mountain? He wants to covenant with them. He wants to formalize the relationship, not for his benefit, but for theirs. That's what a covenant is. He wants to formalize the relationship. A covenant is more than a contract. A contract is transactional. A covenant is relational. The focus and purpose of a covenant is the underlying relationship. It's a formal commitment for the purpose of announcing and protecting and the flourishing of that relationship. If your mind is going to marriage, that's the right place to go. That's exactly where the Bible goes when it describes what happened at Sinai. And so the prophet Jeremiah says it like this, Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. And when he wants to call faithless Israel back to the covenant, he does it like this, Return, faithless people, declares the Lord. For I am your husband. Jeremiah is also typical of the prophets when he describes Israel's rebellion as adultery, even prostitution, ending in divorce. The prophet Hosea builds his whole message around those themes. So it's good and right for us to see what happens in Exodus 19, what Bokung just read for us, as a kind of a marriage. And when we look closely, we're going to see that the standard features of a marriage are all there. So we're going to see that the bride is prepared. The groom arrives and the priest officiates. Those three things. The bride is prepared, the groom arrives, and the priest officiates. Just look at chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. Uh, it'll be great, as always, if you go with me into the scriptures, because really, who cares what I have to say? We want to see God's truth. We want to hear God speak to us through his word. So if you can have your Bible app open at Exodus 19, have a look at verse 4 and 5. They function as a kind of a courtship. 
So from verse 4, Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. So what's happening there? Well, in verse 4, the Lord reminds his beloved of the history of his love for her. Brought you to myself. That phrase, brought you to myself, is the language of consummating a nuptial. It's wedding language. Verses 5 and 6 are a proposal, an antinuptial, and labola all rolled into one. In verse 8, Israel accepts the proposal. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They are now engaged. They are betrothed. And so the bride begins her preparations. You know, uh, when a bride arrives at a wedding and she steps out into public view for the first time and all the ladies are ooing and aahing and cooing and ululating and the gents are checking their watches, going, sure, this could take a while. I could really use that first beer. Whichever side of the aisle you're on, there's something we can all agree on. When she arrives, she hasn't just jumped in the shower, thrown on her kit, and hopped in an Uber. She is prepared. If the wedding is at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, well, the hair preparations began at 8 o'clock the previous Tuesday. (laughs) She is prepared. That's why we never see a bride arrive in her gym clothes. Sure, sorry guys, sorry I'm late. There was a queue at the treadmill. Doesn't happen. She has prepared. That's what we see in Israel. From verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. And he said to the people, Be ready, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. She had to be ready. The Lord's bride had to be ready. She had to prepare. The washing of garments is similar to the white dress, an outward symbol of an inner purity. Limits need to be put in place to preserve the sanctity of the occasion. There's also chastity before the wedding. The people refrain from intercourse as a kind of a token of their their total devotion to the Lord. She needs to be ready. The bride is prepared. And then the groom arrives. Now, I know that this is back to front for some of us because in some cultures, it's the groom who is waiting and then the bride arrives. Normally late. Because, of course, she has to remind everyone it takes time to look this good, all right? But that's not true. That that setup is not true of every culture. In some cultures, it's the groom who arrives, and it's the bride who's waiting. What's true of every culture is that there's some sort of grand entrance. There's some sort of grand coming together. 
And that's what we see in our passage. Look at verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people up out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Sinai to the top of the mountain. It's a big entrance, fit for the occasion. The bride is ready. She's taken her stand at the foot of the mountain. The groom has arrived. And as is common at many weddings, there is a priest to officiate. Look at how verse 20 finishes. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Israel are camped at Mount Sinai from Exodus 19 all the way to the end of the book, chapter 40. That's 21 chapters. That's more than half of the book they are camped at the mountain. During that time, Moses goes up and down the mountain seven times. In fact, that's how the rest of Exodus is organized. It's organized around Moses going up and down the mountain seven times. It's clearly an important theme. Moses is playing the role of go-between. Now, I'm not a priest. We are not priests. We are pastors. But I have officiated at a few weddings. And so I've played that role. I know what it's like, scurrying backwards and forwards between bride and groom, groom and bride. If I'm doing a wedding, I make sure I wear my fitness watch. I know I'm going to get my steps that day. Especially, especially if there's a mother-in-law involved. (laughs) Then I'm running. We see Moses playing this role of go-between. He goes up to the Lord in verse 3, down to the people in verse 7, up to the Lord in verse 8, down to the people in verse 14, up to the Lord in verse 20, down to the people in verse 25. Up and down the mountain three times in this one chapter. So clearly the role of Moses is important. We're going to come back to that. The point we're making for now is simply this. Exodus 19 is a lot like a wedding. It's a lot like a wedding, but it's also clear this is no ordinary wedding. For one thing, the couple are a complete mismatch. The Lord is holy. The people are not. This distance This mismatch between the Lord and the people is expressed in a whole variety of ways. We just start, we'll we'll start just with the setting, the basics of the setting, the, the geography, the mountain itself. The people can only take their stand at the foot of the mountain. And the Lord will only descend to the top of the mountain. So there's this great physical distance between them, symbolic of a spiritual distance between them. And even then, the Lord's presence is obscured at the very top of the mountain. His presence is obscured by a cloud. It's a fiery cloud. Fire is the symbol of the Lord's 
burning purity. And so it's also the symbol of his sustained opposition to anything that is not pure. The last time we saw it, do you remember? The last time we saw the fire of the Lord was with Moses at the burning bush. When Moses had to take care for his life because he was standing on holy ground. But this fire of the Lord goes all the way back to the very beginning when the angel of the Lord blocked any return to Eden with a sword of fire. So fire highlights the dangerous difference between the Lord and his people. It's not surprising then that even though the people have washed their garments, they've observed the limits, they've gone through all the preparations, when the moment comes, they tremble with fear. And they need to be warned again not to approach. Why? So that they don't die. The holiness of the Lord means distance from the people. But strangely, paradoxically, it also means Intimacy and invitation. Think about, it, think about it with me. What was it that attracted Moses to the bush? It was the fire of the Lord. It was the Lord who brought the people to the mountain. I brought you to myself, he says. It is the Lord who comes down onto the mountain, who condescends to be with his people. And that cloud is not just a cloud of obscurity. It's also a cloud of revelation. It's the visible symbol of the invisible God. It's not just a barrier. It's also an invitation. The Lord speaks from where? From the cloud. And again, this fire is not just the fire of judgment. It is the fire of jealousy. Listen to how Deuteronomy speaks about Sinai. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, or the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. Why? Take care, why? Take care not to do those things, why? For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. In his holiness... He wants his bride for himself and only for himself. The holiness of the Lord means both distance and intimacy. Both difference and invitation. And so the picture we're getting is a picture of a hopeless mismatch. You ever been to a wedding and and you thought to yourself, oh my gosh, I'm not sure how this one's going to last. It's that kind of mismatch. Israel is a slave girl marrying into the royal family. She must learn to live like royalty. How is that ever going to happen? Because we have read the rest of the story. How is this match ever going to work out? Well, the summary version of the rest of the story is that it's not going to. It just can't. Israel cannot live up to it. She runs after other husbands. She prostitutes herself. It seems you can take Israel out of Egypt, but you cannot take Egypt out of Israel. And even Moses, the faithful priest, can't save her. Even Moses himself isn't faithful. 
to the Lord. And he dies outside the land. Now here's the scary thing about that tragic story. We face the very same prospect. The Lord is proposing to us. He wants to make us his bride. He's inviting us into the royal family. But life in the royal family is a life of holiness. The only way this marriage can work is if we are holy. The Lord cannot become unholy. He cannot become anything other than himself. We have to become holy. How is that ever going to happen? Are we going to do this thing by our own moral effort? Is that the key? Are we going to try harder? If that's the key, are we saying we're better than Israel? Are we better than Moses? How are we going to become a holy people? To help us answer that question, I want to read to you the tale of two mountains. So, two mountains presented in this account. Try and spot the difference. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Mount Sinai, Mount Zion. Did you spot the difference? Well, there's so many differences, but did you spot the difference that makes the difference? The mediator. The difference is Jesus. Jesus is the perfect mediator. He came down the mountain from his home in glory to be with the lowest of his people. And then he went back up the mountain, the mountain called the skull, to face the fire of the Lord, to quench his holy anger at our unholiness. He suffered divorce for our infidelity. And he did it to make us holy and pleasing to God, to dress us in his righteousness. The king gave up the throne and married a slave so that we who are slaves might become royalty. Jesus is God's perfect proposal to mankind and mankind's perfect response to God. We are holy because he is holy. And we are in him. We belong to him. Now what does that mean for holiness in our everyday lives? Well, I think it's at least these four things. Holiness is a gift motivated by love. Holiness 
requires obedience. Holiness is for others. And holiness is the good life that ends in glory. Those four things. Holiness is a gift motivated by love. You don't get to Exodus 20. You can't get to the Ten Commandments without passing through Exodus 19. And so holiness is not just about keeping some rules. It is so much more than a list of do nots. Holiness in the first place is a gift motivated by love. It is the Lord who brought the people to himself. And the picture we have, he did it on eagle's wings. The picture we have is of a mother eagle literally flying her fledgling out of the nest to teach it to fly. It's a symbol of enormous power exercised in love. He did it so that we might become his treasured possession, God's treasure, so that you might become God's treasure. Do you know that your heavenly Father delights in you? I mean, know it in a way that is different to the preacher saying it from the front. Do you know in your heart of hearts that your heavenly Father delights in you? He doesn't just tolerate you. He's not just putting up with you. He delights in you. He wants to be in your company. It's why he brought you to himself. It's why he came down the mountain in the person of Jesus and went back up the mountain to that cross. The ultimate symbol of power exercised in love. God gives you the gift of holiness because he loves you. He sets you apart for himself. That's what holiness is in the first place. Because he loves you. Holiness means that you are married to God. It is a gift given in love. Why he loves us is a mystery. He loves us because that's who he is. And we can't really penetrate beyond that. But because he loves us, he wants to be with us. But he is holy. Do you see we're back in our dilemma? We're back in our conundrum. He wants to be with us, but he's holy. And so that means for us to be with him, we have to be holy. But we can't make ourselves holy. Israel tried for centuries. They failed. No doubt you have tried and failed. Here's the key. Jesus hasn't failed. The Apostle Paul says it like this to the Corinthian church. To the church of God that is in Corinth. To those made holy in Christ Jesus. And called to be holy together with all of those who call upon the name of the Lord. Did you hear that? How does holiness come to you? You are made holy in Christ Jesus. Your holiness is a gift given in love. Holiness is relational before it's ever ethical. It's a gift given in love. And yet, this is our second point, holiness requires obedience. 
Exodus 19 verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a holy nation. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be a holy nation. If you give your kid the gift of a bicycle, well, you're hoping that he's going to ride it. She's going to ride it. You're not hoping to see it propped up against the garage wall endlessly. Too many of us are propping the gift of holiness in Christ up against the garage wall. We have been set apart to live for God by the blood work of Jesus Christ. And we're grateful for the gift. Make no mistake, we're grateful for the gift. But in our everyday lives, we deny that the gift was ever given. Our holiness makes no difference to how we live. It's as if we were never set apart for God by the blood work of Jesus Christ. And yet those in Corinth who have been made holy in Christ Jesus are also called to be holy. Along with everyone else who calls on the name of the Lord. And I think that includes us. So to the church of God that is in Midrand, you have been made holy in Christ Jesus. And now you are called to be holy. In other words, be who you are. You are royalty. Live like royalty. But remember, holiness doesn't mean instant perfection. Just add water. Your father just wants to see you riding your bike. He knows that you're going to fall over, by the way. That you're going to fall over a lot. He is not going to take the bicycle away. He's going to do what any decent father would do. He is going to pick you up and dust you off and help you try again. He just enjoys watching you try. And he knows the more you try, the more you fall and get back up again, the better you're going to get. That's the nature of holiness. Third point we want to make, we want to see, is that holiness is for others. Let me ask you this question. What does unholiness look like? Got a picture of something in your mind? Perhaps someone? If you thought of someone who openly flouts God's commandments, does whatever they want, and so their life looks like a bit of a train wreck, you'd be right. That is one brand of holiness, but it's only one brand. There's another, and in many ways it's more sinister. Your life can be the perfect picture of moral order, and yet you can be deeply, deeply unholy. How could that be? Well, on this brand, what you think of as your holiness is just self-righteousness. It's just a way of living so that you can shove your moral life into other people's faces in subtle and not-so-subtle ways to remind them and you that you're better, that you're superior. And of course, that is a million miles 
from the essence of true holiness. Another way to say it is that holiness is not just from others. It's also for others. Let me try and explain what I mean. So listen to how the Apostle Peter picks up the language of Exodus 19 and preaches it to a group of disciples. Not dissimilar to this gathering here. This is what he writes. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What does it mean to be a holy people, a holy nation that is also a royal priesthood? It means that you proclaim in thought, word, and deed, you proclaim the excellencies of God to a watching world. And then Peter goes on to say, within two verses, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. In other words, to be holy is to be a mediator. We are to mediate God's goodness to those who don't know him. Holiness means being an ambassador for Christ. You are an ambassador for Christ. We make a grave mistake if we think that holiness is just from others. In other words, that it's just about being different from other people. That much is true. Right? So we don't want to make the opposite mistake. That much is true, but by itself, it's a dangerous half-truth. And it so easily morphs into shoving your self-righteousness into other people's faces. To convince yourself and them that you are better. Hear me on this. We must live distinct lives. We must. We must. We've lost sight of our holiness. We've lost sight of who we are if we are not living distinct lives. We must live distinct lives. But why? Now, the, the Scriptures give us a whole suite of motivations for holiness. There's no end of motivations for living a holy life. But one of the primary motivations is that so that those looking in from the outside can see something different. They can know us by our love. And they can see that the difference is not these people. The difference is God. And they can want him for themselves. Do you see that? When they look at us, there's no hint of self-righteousness. But these people are different. What is the difference? Let me find out. It's God. They have this God. Who is this God? Holiness is not just from others. It's also for others. And it shouldn't surprise us because we've just learned that that's how God's holiness plays out in the life of Israel, in his interactions with Israel. Remember, we, we've just learned that holiness is about both distance and intimacy at the same time. It's a distance, it's a difference that attracts and invites. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the Holy One of a people who were profoundly unholy, and yet they were drawn to Him. Holiness is a distinctive that isn't designed to repel. 
It's designed to attract, and it will attract, because in the end, holiness is the good life, and it ends in glory. That's our final point. Holiness is the good life that ends in glory. Jesus, the one who makes us holy, is also the one who says, I have come to give you life, and life to the full, the abundant life. Imagine with me a life that wasn't just about you. A life in which your sweaty, tight-fisted little concerns didn't rule you like a thousand tyrants. A life in which you were big-hearted and generous and warm and it came naturally. A life in which you could meet every slight or snub or insult or disappointment with a smile. Because your joy was unbreakable and your identity unshakable. A life soaked and saturated in love. God's love for you, your love for God, overflowing in your life to love for others around you. Imagine a life in which you acted justly and loved mercy and walked humbly with your God. A life in which love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control were not just words on a fridge magnet. They were the unmistakable characteristics, marks of your soul. And those, of course, are the fruits of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit. That's the life of holiness. That's the life that looks more and more like Jesus himself as each day passes. It's the good life. It's the beautiful marriage. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of holiness that you have given us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gift of the good life with you. Please, Father, by your Holy Spirit, help us to live this good life to the full. Help us to be who we are in Christ Jesus. You have made us holy. Help us to be holy. 
we long to live lives so holy that they are attractive to those who are not holy. Please help us to be the royal priesthood you've called us to be. Help us in our lives, by our words, in our thoughts, with every breath, to be ambassadors for Christ. It's in his holy name that we pray. Amen.